On this episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to continue our discussion on the development of personality. And we're looking at the individual schools of thought within therapy and kind of how they saw the development of personality or how they defined personality and what was important in the development of personality. So this week, we're going to dive into existential theory. At the beginning of this series, we dived into psychoanalytic theories, talking about Sigmund Freud, and then we moved to Alfred Adler's individual psychology. So now we're going to shift from psychoanalytic theory and the focus on Freud's drive for pleasure and Adler's will to power, and we're going to move into a theory that believes that people are self-aware, and we're going to focus on a desire to find meaning in life. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. All right, welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. I've been walking us through the various theories of how therapy and people who provide therapy and counseling saw the development of the personality, or at least how they defined personality. And so today we're going to take a journey into existentialism. And in doing so, we're going to move from determinism and soft determinism, where really our life is guided by mechanical forces that are unseen. And we're going to move into a belief system that emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent who can then determine their own development through acts of their personal will. And that's kind of the difference here. So instead of these mechanical forces that are determining our role in the world, our life, so to say, we're going to now say, no, the individual person has a free will and they can determine their own development through acts of the will. And when I think of this particular philosophy, I always think of various ancient literature, specifically literature involving gods, where gods are mechanically maneuvering people to do their will or to live out through them. When I think of that, I think of some of the old movies that were made, some of the epics like Jason and the Argonauts. So if you've ever seen Jason and the Argonauts, one of the things you'll notice right away is that the gods are literally moving them around on a game board of some kind, showing that they do not have the free will of their own, but are actually just being moved by the gods. And what's interesting is, is you oftentimes in those old stories, you see this internal dialogue, this internal debate of somebody who is trying to fight against their fate. And then somehow, because of that fight, they end up making their fate reality. And so we're going to move from that to say, no, people are free, they're responsible, and they determine their own development through acts of the will. As I've said on the previous episodes in this series, one way that these theories postulate personality is by defining what is healthy versus unhealthy. 
And I know those terms, especially in the therapy world, kind of come from the medical model of what is health and what is unhealth versus, for example, what is helpful behavior versus harmful behavior. But this theory defines health as individuals who are self-aware, knowing their freedom and their responsibility, as well as overcoming the anxiety that exists because of freedom, death, isolation, and meaninglessness. Death is going to be a big focus on this type of therapy, as well as overcoming the anxiety that comes from the fear of death. Knowing that someday we must all die causes anxiety within us. So one of the goals of this therapy that you will see is that it's helping us to navigate the anxiety that will come from our eventual death. It will also tackle big things like the meaning of life. What does it mean to be alive? As well as the loneliness and the isolation that comes from the fact that everyone must die alone. Even with people in the room, the process of death is an individual process. Some of us experience it quickly, and some folks unfortunately experience a long period of time where they are dying. And how do they find meaning in that isolation and that process that only they can go through? As well as the folks who are living through those experiences as they watch someone that they care about suffer through that experience. There are several key players in this type of theory. Viktor Frankl, who was the proponent of logotherapy or logotherapy, Rollo Reese May and his existentialism, and Irvin Yalom, so logotherapy or logotherapy is the third school of psychotherapy that emphasizes the desire to find meaning in life. This is in opposition to Adler's will to power and Freud's drive for pleasure. And it holds to the belief that all human beings are free and can control their desires. And that's one of the key concepts we see in this theory that's opposed to the previous theories, where there is this will and this drive that almost seems uncontrollable, as if there's aspects of us that are beyond our control. For Adler, it was this desire to meet this hidden goal, this striving to a perceived plus. For Freud, it was these drives that warred within us for dominance based on pleasure. In this theory, all people are trying to find their individual identity. And we can think about this in times when we are pondering our place in the universe, where we have that internal dialogue, where we wonder within us, what is the meaning of our life? What is our purpose? And there's a big paradox in this theory, which they refer to as the paradox of life. And it is this, we are both connected in relationship with others, and yet we are completely and utterly alone. And that's a paradox because those are two things that are truthful that seemingly can't happen at the same time. And yet they do. And oftentimes we experience relationship and then we experience that isolation. Some people can even be in relationship and feel completely alone. I always say our internal dialogue does the most damage when we're home alone right before bed, pondering these big things. When that negative voice comes out and it says, you're not good enough, you're not desirable enough, you don't have what it takes, you're a loser. Those are the times we feel most alone. And this theory would also say the time right before death, where we are crossing through the veil of life into death, from the known into the unknown. And this theory also talks about that anxiety that comes from the fear of dying. 
But they say there's also anxiety that comes from what they consider the givens of existence. Things like freedom, death, which we've already discussed, isolation, which we've already discussed, and meaninglessness. Is that we can have anxiety within us because of our own freedom or lack thereof. I oftentimes, when I think of this lack of freedom, I think of addiction, where part of you desperately desires to stop using your drug of choice because it is causing you so much interpersonal hell, and yet you cannot stop. And the anxiety that comes from that lack of freedom. And that can flip, ironically, for those who are living a life of recovery, however they define that. But it can flip to, I have this freedom now from my drug of choice. And there's a tremendous amount of anxiety of, how do I live in freedom? There's a title of a book on addiction that I think is excellent. And it's called, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which I think applies to this, this idea of freedom and the idea of being haunted. Now, I don't necessarily know if that's what the author meant by that name whatsoever, because if you read a synopsis of this book, it states that in the realm of hungry ghosts, it condemns society for depriving human beings of what they need to thrive and then persecuting and punishing them for when they use drugs to relieve their pain. Rollo Reese May also added some things to this theory. He had his stages. He felt that first there was innocence or the pre-ego, pre-self-conscious stage of an infant. And then he felt that we move from that stage into rebellion or the childhood adolescent stage of forming an ego. Then he held that there's this stage of ordinary, average, or normal adult ego. It's not creative and it's conventional. It leads us into not taking any risks. And then the last stage, which was our creative or self actualization stage, where we began to actualize ourselves, to develop our purpose, to develop our meaning, where you are able to be at your full potential. And when I think of this concept, I always think of a Star Trek Next Gen episode where the children are kidnapped by this advanced society that has no outside interference. And they are able, because of their freedom, to get to a place where they can have and be at their full potential. And they kidnap the kids that are special from the USS Enterprise in order to hone that same ability in them because they are not able to have children. But it's our ability to be at our full potential and to realize what our full potential is and isn't. This theory sees human nature in the light of what they call awakened potential in a world where individuals need to make meaning of the world in which they live. They believe that people, as I said before, are connected and yet alone. People can control their desires, and they are constantly in a process of knowing themselves better. Everyone is seeking that meaning in their life, seeking purpose. And that's kind of where this theory focuses on. Irvin Yalom would then come on the scene and become the father of group psychotherapy. So I want to preface something here. I've been calling... Irvin Yalom, the father of group psychotherapy. So some of you might be listening who have historical knowledge of this, and you would say, no, Joseph Pratt is actually known as the father of group therapy. So I just want to preface this by saying that Irvin Yalom has been called the father of existential group psychotherapy. So I should put that preface on it. He was a pioneer and group psychotherapy, but specifically with existential psychotherapy, 
that we utilize today in most group therapy sessions. He wrote a huge tomb on group psychotherapy from the existentialist point of view. I think I've read the book cover to cover four or five times while taking notes. It's just something that I felt was very profound. And he felt that group psychotherapy was extremely important. And he had a belief that there were therapeutic factors that made this type of therapy extremely important and successful. First of all, I believed in the installation of hope, the understanding of universality. There was imparting of information. There was altruism. And something I felt was very important from my perspective of working with families. He believed that there was a factor that corrected the recapitulation of the primary family group. In his book, he talks about the family shows up in group. There's techniques, there's ways of interacting that you did in your family of origin that will show up in family-like groups. But there can be challenge of those within the group. He felt that another factor was the development of socializing techniques, interpersonal learning, and lastly, group cohesiveness. So if you ever get a chance to read this book, it's, it's excellent, especially if you are someday considering going into therapy or you love individual therapy, but group therapy terrifies you. Because I've met some people who would do group therapy all day long if they could do it. And I've also met folks who dislike group therapy. Just the fact of group therapy makes them uncomfortable. And so if you ever get an opportunity, I would recommend this book. The book is actually entitled The Theory and Practice of Group Psychotherapy. And you can get it online for anywhere from four to five bucks. It is long, so I'll preface that as well. It is a lot of pages. I think the copy that I have, which is older and hardback, is almost 700 pages long. And it's a difficult read, meaning that Irvin Yalom is a brain. He uses very big words to describe his concepts. When I was first reading this book several years ago, there was actually times where I had to get out the dictionary just to understand the terms that he was using to describe things. So it's kind of a learning journey just learning how to read the book. So if you're a nerd and you're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I would love to read a book that I have to get out a dictionary in order to understand, then that's the book for you. So again, this has been existentialism, existential theory, existential therapy, and kind of how they see the individual. Next week, we're going to dive into person-centered theory. So I hope you're enjoying this content. And remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family, and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated, and maybe you are, but you're not alone.